mercy and peace to you from our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All teaching is basically the work of translating. Trying to translate what is unknown into words and experiences that are already known so you can get a person to understand something they've never understood before. All teaching is basically, in a sense, translating. Because a translator job, a translator's job is to communicate the meaning of something in one language and put it into a language you already know. Getting truth from one language into another language is translating and it takes you from one place to another place in the process of understanding something you've never understood before. And so the Bible we're reading is a translation. It's bringing something from another language, Greek, into English. And depending on which Bible you're reading from, you'll notice that the translations are slightly different. So in the English Standard Version, we read about the Emmaus disciples, and at the very end, it says, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? Now, another translation, known as the message, puts it this way. They came to the edge of the village where they were headed. He acted if he was going on, but they pressed him. Stay and have supper with us. It's nearly evening. The day is done. So he went in with them. And here is what happened. He sat down at the table with them, taking the bread. He blessed and broke and gave it to them. At that moment, open-eyed, wide-eyed, they recognized him. And then he disappeared. Back and forth they talked. Didn't we feel on fire as he conversed with us on the road, as he opened up the scriptures for us? Now, the message is actually a, more of a paraphrase than a translation. You should think of it as something like a commentary or a devotional reading on the Bible because there's some liberties there in how it's paraphrased. It uses the phrase on fire to describe what the disciples were feeling and experiencing by the end of this encounter with Jesus. Actually, the message was written by a pastor, Eugene Peterson, and the work of putting that together began in sermons. He originally preached it to his people before he put it into the paraphrase we have today known as the message. But it was originally meant to be a communication from the pulpit to the people, trying to translate what they were thinking, what they were feeling into words for you, which is what every sermon is doing. It is trying to take something you don't know that's coming out of the scriptures and then put it in front of you in words where you can see it, you can imagine it, you can understand it. It's a journey. It's a journey from one place to another place. And so we remember the Bible was written in Greek. And the word for on fire, depending on how you translate it, you could get it completely wrong. 
It means to cause something to be lit. Well, what if we were to translate their hearts were burnt to a crisp? Would that describe what's happening? Their hearts were consumed with fire. Probably not. Their hearts were heated warmly. Eh. But if we take that Greek word and say their hearts were kindled, their hearts were enlightened, their hearts were enlightened by flame, sparked, lit, stoked, then we're getting closer and closer to the place where Jesus wants his disciples to be after he walks with them. Their hearts were on fire. Jesus had opened the scriptures to them. In fact, Jesus had translated the scriptures for them. It says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he translated to them or interpreted for them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now here we have another Greek word. The word is diahere menueo, which none of you need to remember. But it is a word which gives us our English hermeneutics, the class that they make you take when you go to seminary called hermeneutics. It's, it's the art of interpreting scripture. Jesus interpreted the Old Testament for these disciples. He took them back into scriptures that they already thought they know and retranslated them into a new language they had never imagined so that they would see the Christ coming through in every text. Now that must have been a powerful sermon. Our sermon today is about how God does this to each of us. He translates us from some place that we are not seeing what he wants to see. He wants us to see to a place where we see what he wants to see. The language of God, a reality that is so far beyond our, us, beyond our life, that we would have never imagined it until Jesus comes and rises from the dead. It's only experiencing now the new presence of the risen Lord that we can see things that we never could have seen before coming out of the Old Testament and coming out of the scriptures and right into our lives. He translates for us as we walk along the way. So it's like a journey. It's a journey of faith from one place to another as the kids sang in the hymn last week, walking the way, Christ in the center, telling the story to open our eyes. So where did they begin? The journey begins in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, for them, is a place of confusion. It's a place where they saw the one they hoped would redeem all Israel, the promised Messiah, and they saw him crucified. They saw him die. They saw his dead body taken away and put into a tomb. To translate this into words for today, Jerusalem is the place of grief and despair. Let's start there today with grief. Broken hearted grief. 
The disciples are lost in grief. They say that there's stages to grief. You have denial, anger, depression, bargaining, and then at last, acceptance. For grief support groups, you can find people coming together, talking about these stages, and being at different places in different times. And they say that it's not a linear journey as if you go right from one stage to the end, but a circular journey where you're revisiting different feelings depending on the day. Overall, everyone grieves in some way. We grieve over things that we've lost or people that we've lost, but we also grieve over things that did not turn out the way we expected them to, or ways we've been hurt, or ways that we have hurt others. So let me share you with you a story in our own common pop culture language of grief. And I'm gonna give you a spoiler alert. If you haven't seen the series WandaVision on Disney+, Plus, you might wanna plug your ears but there was a series last year on Disney Plus called WandaVision. It was part of the Marvel Universe, which is an ongoing story of these superheroes from the Marvel comic books. And one of these heroes was Wanda Maximoff. And she had her own superpowers. She was able to control reality and affect even what people think. Quite a powerful woman. But now you come to this, and it was a TV series. It had several episodes, and it begins in a quintessential suburb that is something out of the Brady Bunch. And they're living in this town of traditional American life where families all live on the same street with white picket fences, and each episode is something out of those TV series that portrayed this from Dick Van Dyke to Leave it to Beaver. You see this perfect life that once existed, the happier times. It recalls a simpler, happier life where everything works out, where the family is intact, and where the marriage is happy. Only one thing that Marvel fans will recognize from the very beginning is the lead character, the husband, who's married to Wanda, He's another superhero. His name is Vision. Well, Marvel fans will know as soon as he appears in the episode, he's dead. He's not supposed to be there. In the timeline, he's gone. He died in the last movie. So you're wondering what's going on because Wanda's not using her superpowers. She's living in this fantasy world where her husband is no longer dead, but he's alive again. On the surface, it is a superhero movie. It's about good and evil, and in the end, the villain is revealed and defeated, and things do work out. But underneath it all is an unspoken parable about grief. It isn't until Wanda finally comes to accept that pain and grief that she is really experiencing from losing the love of her life that finally she sees what's happening. 
throughout the episodes you're clued in that things just are not quite what they're supposed to be. The people in the town, every once in a while, break character and they show that they don't really want to be there in this TV show. Every once in a while you feel that something isn't right and the husband vision is starting to catch on. It's not till the very end that finally Wanda has to come to accept that her husband is dead. And what she's done is she's constructed this whole town in this false reality out of her superpowers. And she's controlling all the other people in the town. And she's even brought her husband back to life to live in this world. But it's not real. Finally, she defeats evil by setting the people free from her power and returning the town to reality. Today, where her husband is no longer with her. Now, what does this have to do with our text? Well, Clopas says to the man walking with them, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened? You see, you have this same sense of a story where things are just not what they're supposed to be. This is not how it was supposed to work out. In fact, this is more of the story of Wanda turned inside out. It's all grief turned inside out. Because we're looking at this world that the disciples are looking at without Jesus. What would this world be without Jesus? It would be like these disciples, trying to figure out what happened, talking about these great things that happened, and then saying, but in the end, it just didn't work out. Paul says that if Christ did not rise, then Christians should have the most pity of anyone in the world. Jerusalem is the place where he suffered and died. And it says that they stopped when he asked them this question. They're on their way, making their way, but when he asks them their question, they stop and they look sad. Their faces are covered in gloom. They're stuck. Have you ever been stuck? Have you ever been stuck in grief or sadness where you can't see clearly? Where maybe your hopes about God or the kingdom haven't worked out? Now, I'm not trying to tell you that grief is sinful or that it's because of a false hope or lack of faith. That's not what we're saying here about grief. But we are saying that grief can be powerful and it can, in fact, overpower a person to the point that drives them to despair. And despair is where there's no more hope. We had hoped this, but this is what really happened. And this is the sorrow that the world experiences every day. The world is lost in a sorrow that has no hope. It's a sorrow that's overpowering. It's a world without a risen Jesus. And it leaves everything empty. Yes, we can spend our time with thrills. We can look for accomplishments. We can find recognition. We can pass on a legacy. We can have a lot of friends. 
But in the end, death is going to take it all away. And it could take away any part or any piece of that at any time. And so the world grieves unto destruction. Like Wanda trying to control everything. What other people are thinking, how they're acting. Trying to recreate a time that once was that never really existed at all. It's a fantasy. Escape. Paul says that the creation groans under the curse. And it says that the Bible says you should grieve. But Paul says we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve as those who do have hope. These disciples recount the things that have happened. In verse 19, they say, He was a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, and now it is the third day since these things happened. Notice how they are retelling the story of Luke. In fact, if you're paying close attention and you're reading through Luke, you will notice this pattern keeps coming up. Three times Jesus has already referenced this pattern. It began in chapter 9, verse 21. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Again in chapter 9, verse 44. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And then again in chapter 18, verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So now we come to the resurrection, and the disciples are recounting the Gospel of Luke. And they're saying, first of all, he was from Nazareth, a prophet, and he was mighty indeed. He did a lot of miracles. Secondly, the chief priests and rulers delivered him to death. Thirdly, he died and was crucified. And fourthly, now it's been three days since he died. And fifthly, we've even heard of these women who have gone to the tomb and seen the empty tomb and are claiming an angel said he's alive. At the end they say, but him they did not see. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? They went to the tomb thinking they were going to find answers, but him they did not see. They're not seeing him and he's walking right with them. They're recounting every part, and right in the middle, 
where you expect a Christian to confess he has risen from the dead, they say, we had hoped. Okay? So the cornerstone to the Christian faith and confession is the resurrection. It's everything, because right where they want to say he has risen from the dead and we have hope, they leave it out and they say we had hoped he was going to redeem Israel. Everything rests on the resurrection. Jesus is hidden from their eyes. This is what happens when we look at the world around us and we leave out the resurrection. When we see the awful things that happen uh, and the great things that happen. So they remember the great things Jesus did. There's a lot of great things. We have ups and downs in our life. We can look at great things. We can look at really bad things. But in the end, if we don't have the resurrection, it is going to eventually lead us to grief that will overcome us. It leaves life empty, and we're stuck standing there on the road trying to explain it to someone who we think is just a stranger. Jesus has to interpret this for them. In fact, Jesus interprets everything for them. He interprets what hope is made of. He interprets redemption. He interprets truth. He translates all the events they've witnessed into a totally new language, the language of the resurrection. Beginning with Moses and all the scriptures, he interprets why Christ had to suffer in order to enter into his glory. Yes, that word translate comes up right there in verse 27. He interprets and translates to them. It's actually a Greek word. We said it was hermeneutics, but it comes from the word for a Greek god, Hermes. And Hermes was the messenger of the gods. What it is saying is that we are bringing a heavenly message down to earth. God has to come down to our language and our experiences to get us to understand this. He has to become flesh. And when he does, it looks strange to us. When God comes into our world, it's strange. We think he's just a visitor. We can't understand why he would want to come down from heaven in order to suffer. We can't understand why he would allow his people to suffer. Like Wanda, we're just not seeing reality as it really is. But when Jesus walks with us, even if we can't see him at first, but we're listening, and the word is alive, it's setting our heart on fire. Just listen. It's igniting something that wasn't there before, taking us on a journey from one place to another place, translating thoughts that are in God's minds to put them into our minds about what is real and what is true and what is good. Until finally, he takes us home. He sits down with us. He breaks bread. And then we see what it all means. God wants to take you home. Now, home might be the same place it always was. 
physically speaking, we're going back to the same home, the same families, the same problems. At work, we're going back to the same irritations or the same disappointments or the same monotonous work. At church, we're coming in to sit down in the same pews and see the same ordinary people and people that we know and people we don't know so well, and we're all here in the same place. But the resurrection really takes us to a completely new place. We go home and things are different. We go to work and things are different. We come to church and things are different. When we finally see God bringing us home, he breaks bread. He blesses it and he says, take and eat and take and drink. And from the beginning of the service to hearing the word to the sacrament at the end, we know we have spent time with God. This is the work of a teacher. And Jesus is the greatest teacher. To translate you from the place you were toward the place he wants you to be and know that you are always at home with him. So our kids sang this verse last week. Walking the way, Christ in the center, telling the story to open our eyes, breaking our bread, giving us glory, Jesus our blessing, our constant surprise. <laughs>